Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. So what do, I don't know, post-it notes, the sport of curling, and geckos have uh, in common with one another? <laughs> maybe, maybe a lot of things for all I know, but what I'm thinking about right now is stickiness. Because actually, I mean, curling maybe doesn't sound like it fits there, but curling actually does, in fact, run off of stickiness in a way that we will explain to you, because uh, you're dying to know more about curling, uh, when we begin the show right after the news. But yeah, the whole show today is about stickiness. Why things are sticky, what stickiness even means, what is the quality of stickiness, and how can it be harnessed for the good of others. And towards the end, we'll also tell you about the great chewing gum turndown of the pandemic. Do you think he means S-O-U-L or S-O-L-E? Because really, in terms of the terrain we will be traversing on today's show, S-O-L-E, like having really sticky feet, is much more to the point. Uh, But we're going to talk about stickiness today. Uh, And... For some reason or other, we've been talking... Well, you know, it all started because Teresa Kramer, one of our regular panelists, was explaining that she disliked small children because of what she referred to as their jam hands. And everybody knew right away what she meant. You know, the kid comes up to you, the sticky hands, ah, it's not a good feeling. I mean, it might not be an entire reason to discard children. but uh, So we're going to talk about stickiness today, which turns out to be this extraordinarily complex thing. It's probably not just one thing. And even to the extent that it's just one thing, it immediately becomes two things. Let me give you an example. Paint has to be sticky, right? Uh, you can't paint your room with orange juice, even if, you, even if you like the color of orange juice, because it'll just dribble down the wall. But it can't be so sticky that it won't go off the paintbrush, right? <laughs> that would be like a Charlie Chaplin movie, trying to paint with really sticky paint, you know? It just like this would stick to the brush the entire time. So in stickiness, I think we're looking for a sweet spot uh, all along. We're going to talk about that. Uh, We're going to talk about geckos. It turns out that, yes, spiders and ants and sea urchins can, you know, walk up walls or whatever. But really, when it comes down to, like, sticky feet, there's kind of geckos and then there's everybody else. Uh, At the end of the show, we're going to talk about chewing gum, probably in a way that isn't entirely consistent with everything else that we've talked about. But consistency is the hobgoblin of small minds. So with no further ado... um, I'm excited to introduce our, our, our first guest. She'll be with us uh, for two-thirds of the show. Lori Winkless is a science writer, physicist, and author of the new book, Sticky, The Secret Science of Stickiness. Uh, and she's joining us, I believe, from New Zealand. Is that correct? 
Yeah, it is, Colin. Hi. It's morning time here, so good morning. Right. Uh, actually, you know, first of all, happy belated Waitangi Day. Uh, congratulations on winning a gold medal in the Winter Games on <laughs> on Waitangi Day. That was a big deal. We actually covered that on our show. I've got kind of, and, and I assume you went to New Zealand to study stickiness because one of the big questions we have is why don't you fall off the Earth into space? Uh, you know, living down there, uh, you, you must have either very sticky feet or the surface of New Zealand is very sticky. Uh, but we'll... <laughs> thankfully, thankfully, the laws of gravity still exist down here. So that's that's what holds us <laughs> onto the planet. Um, right. No, as you can probably possibly tell from my accent, I'm not actually from New Zealand originally. I'm I'm Irish and moved here in 2016, end of 2016. Yes. Um, so, yeah. Uh, I would have guessed that as well, being Irish-American myself. Okay, so... Um, <laughs> First of all, I think maybe the first thing to say here, reading your book, is it's clear that, as I just said two seconds ago, stickiness is not really one thing, right? It's 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 a whole bunch of things that kind of come together to cert- create certain conditions under certain circumstances. Yeah, there's no real scientific definition for stickiness, right? You know, we've got scientific definitions for lots of other things like, you know, we can measure things like density or mass, um, but there's no actual kind of number that we can apply to something to define how sticky it is. Like there are some other terms that we can use and do use to you know, hint at it. Um, viscosity is one of them, right? So we every liquid has a viscosity and that basically means how gloopy it is. Um, you might have something like water that might be fairly low down the scale, but then at the other end of the scale, you might have something like ketchup or honey. It has a much more gloopy substance. And that's because of these forces that are acting, this frictional force that acts between the molecules inside that liquid. And that's often those, those, um, liquids are often considered to be kind of sticky liquids. Then you've also got things like adhesives, right? You've got things like superglue that can stick lots of different objects together. And in fact, you've got hundreds and thousands of different adhesives that you can use to stick different materials together. And one of the weird things about stickiness is that adhesion, adhesives, they they can't be they can't do everything. You always have to know what stuff, what surfaces you're putting your glue onto, um, in order to find the right one to do the right job. And you mentioned paint as well. It's the same thing. You're going to get the right paint for the right job so that it will stay on the surface for as long as possible. You could even argue, and I certainly argue, that between two solid objects, you have a type of stickiness, which is really just friction, dry friction. And that's something I explore a lot in the book. So really, you know, I wrote a whole book about it because it really is hard to define in just a couple of sentences. Right. One of the things that that became clear to me quickly into the book is that, um, well, I'll give you an example. So I bought these uh, winter boots that I use for hiking and um for whatever reason, part of the rubber bottom of them kind of came loose. And mm-hmm. so I went and got some, I think, Gorilla Glue, which is a product here in the U.S. that's, you know, in that kind of super glue category. But it, and, and I kind of <laughs> I kind of squirted it into the cracks of the uh, of the boots and then pr- squished it all together and kind of stepped back and thought, well, maybe it's fixed now. Well, it wasn't. And I, I'm sensing one of the many mistakes that I probably made was – you know, there, if there's any other stuff, if there's a little bit of water in there, if there are a little bit of, you know, sand particles in there, you're already talking about a pretty complex and nuanced set of chemical and physical interactions. Introducing any variables probably uh, also hurts the ability of the thing to work. 
Yeah, precisely that. Like whatever is happening on the surface has a huge role to play. So, you know, sometimes if we are painting a surface, we'll be told to sand it. You know, you want to sand it beforehand to get the paint to stick. And actually, it seems like doing that really is just about cleaning the surface. It's about removing those contaminants in the way. So if your hiking boots, like you said, had some dust or dirt in there in that gap, it just makes it hard for the glue to actually work its way into the rough patches and to to bind those things together. Because most of these glues and even things like sticky tape, they don't actually make any sort of chemical bond between substrates. They just are very stretchy and they can flow and they can fill in the gaps so when you then try to pull them apart you're kind of having to stretch a very very flexible very well spread out liquid so it's not actually a chemical bond it's just a it's just a mechanical bond it's just a it's just pressure effectively um so yeah looking at making sure your surface is as clean as possible will will give the glue an opportunity to to flow and stay in the right place temperature makes a difference too so some glues are particularly good at low temperatures so maybe you, your hiking boots would need something that's better for you know zero degree c or closer to that so there is an awful lot to consider it's never just as simple as we think Right. And, and so um, I, I think also if we were Greek philosophers walking through the Lyceum, we probably would divide stickiness into two categories, things that are intentionally sticky, things that we want to be sticky, uh, and then things that are unintentionally sticky. That would include mm. children's hands, the, uh, <laughs> the floors of movie theaters. Uh, certain things get sticky in a way that we don't want them to be. But let's look at that first category first. It seems to me that and I, I, my dating will be imprecise, but in the 70s or 80s, one started to see commercials for things for, you know, just easily retail uh, available per, you know, products called super glue and, and various mm. versions of that name. And the commercials always showed, I don't know, like an elephant being, you know, held up by a steam iron or something, you know, just stuck to it. And it could, the, the super glue could do anything. Um, mm. I, I sense reading your book that that may be a somewhat exaggerated claim that it's impossible to make a glue that won't fail under any circumstances. Yeah, it really is. And when I spoke to um, people who are kind of working in this, um, who are developing adhesives, that was their main point. It's like, don't expect any single glue to do everything for you. Um, Because they talk about this thing, they say adhesion is a property of the system. So it means that everything has to work together in order to stay stuck. So that will include things like what would what forces will this stuck object have to withstand right once it's in use so say i managed to stick my my sole of my boot back onto my boot the forces that that's going to have to withstand are a tension force a pulling force so you'll design a glue that makes it hard to to kind of be pulled apart whereas in other certain situations you might want to have a glue that can withstand being squished together it might be under compression so you can design and choose different molecules that will behave well in those conditions so it really is super glue is pretty great it does stick to a lot of things but it doesn't always do so in a particularly controlled manner as you know if you get it stuck on your fingers and it hardens like instantly um, so it does it can make a pretty good bond with most subs with most substrates but usually there is an ideal glue for whatever your um your need is 
Yes, I mean, super glue also rather comically can get your finger stuck to the thing that you were working on in the first place. Yes. Um, <laughs> and, and hilarious complications ensue. So uh, there's a whole other category of stuff, maybe even between those two things that the Greek philosophers uh, would be talking about. And that would be things that stick just enough. And sometimes, mm-hmm. and, and so the best example, and the story has been told many times, I think people sitting around campfires say it now, how the post-it note, the sticky note, uh, was invented at 3M. But for those who have never heard it, uh, give them that story. Yes, this is one of my favorites. It seems kind of iconic to me. Um, and of course, I had to write about it, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so there are two different chemists who are uh, attributed with the invention of post-it notes, and they were both at what is now 3M. Um, and the two guys are Spencer Silver and Art Fry, Arthur Fry. Now, Silver had been working on... Um, really, really strong adhesives for use, I think, in the, by, by the military of the aerospace industry and had you know, been trying lots of different polymer compounds, lots of different mixtures um, and found this very slightly sticky adhesive that could be sprayed. So it wasn't at all what they needed. They wanted like an ultra strong adhesive, but instead they had this very mildly sticky adhesive. So he kind of set it aside from that project, but kept it in his pocket and eventually went on to patent the the actual adhesive. Now, his colleague Art Fry was a very famous, like a very uh, fond of his choir. He loved singing and would use bookmarks to mark his positions in any song. But of course, the bookmarks would move. Um, And, you know, this feels like such a bizarre thing because post-it notes are so ubiquitous now, but he didn't have a way to hold his bookmarks in place. And he thought, if I could find um, a semi-sticky liquid that I could temporarily, you know, just hold the bookmarks in place without damaging the paper, we'd have it. And he remembered the presentation that um, Silver had given at the company about this thing that they had patented. So the two kind of knocked their heads together and decided maybe we could design this kind of removable post, this removable note. Now, from there to getting to post-it notes, there were so many engineering solutions that they had to come up with. The first thing is they needed to make a glue for this glue. They needed this mildly sticky adhesive to actually stay on the paper. Otherwise, each time you lift a note off, it would leave some of the glue, some of the residue behind, which you don't want. So they had to invent a whole new glue to hold these tiny little particles of adhesive onto the paper. Then they had to find a way to print that onto the paper in mass quantities so that they could roll the glue onto these little strips that we now think of as the top of us post-it notes. And apparently the, the first machine, the first kind of printer that they designed, they built in Art Fry's basement and it gradually became so big that when they wanted to move it back into the factory, when they got kind of thumbs up from 3M management to scale it up, they had to knock out the wall. <laughs> so it took a long time and, and lots of different engineering solutions to get to that point. And, and now, you know, it's been, it's been a massive success. Yes, we should mention that Spencer Silver uh, passed away last year at the age of 80. Yes. Uh, and uh, the New York Times so bit was just fascinating. It's clear that he was kind of Jesus and Mr. Fry was uh, the Apostle Paul, the one who kind mm-hmm. of got the, got the word out. Um, so uh, it's, it's a terrific story. Now, we're going to go from there to... And, and Laurie, I just want to say, as excited as we all got uh, over uh, Zoe Sadowski Sinet's uh, gold medal in slope style or whatever it was, you know, mm-hmm. the world's attention has turned to this other spine-tingling Olymp- Olympic sport. Let's hear a little bit of it. Go ahead, Maddie. Go, go, Maddie. Heavy? Really got to go. 
Needs to get this close to the nose. Oh boy. Whoa. Yep, 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 yep. That's four all day. Okay. And that will be four. A massive mistake for Team USA in this end, and Canada rockets in front by five. Off the charts difficult. Can Schuster pull it off? Well, they do scramble and at least get a point out of it. It is one red. All right. I don't know about anybody else. I'm, I'm hyperventilating a little bit here. Everybody just take a moment to, to calm down. That, of course, is a clip from the uh, sport of curling. Now, curling kind of involves, and, and one thing that your book makes clear immediately is that there's stickiness on one end of the continuum and there's sort of slipperiness on the other end. And neither one of these things uh, is easily defined or maybe one unified concept. But there's a way in which stickiness and slipperiness kind of almost need each other. And, and and I think with curling, you would think only about the slipperiness, but you make a very compelling case in the book that, that the stickiness is, is part of the whole story, too. Is, is there a way you can kind of sketch that out for us laypersons? Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I, too, am obsessed with curling. <laughs> um, yeah, so one thing to say is that you'll notice that the players will have one slippery shoe and one grippy shoe. So that's one thing. They use one rubber sole, which can hold on to the ice, and one Teflon, usually, um, sole that allows them to slide along the ice. But curling is really unusual compared to other winter sports, because if you look at a curling ice sheet compared to, say, a speed skating oval, speed skating oval tends to be very, very reflective, very hard, very smooth ice. A curling ice sheet tends to look matte, and that's because it's actually covered in what we call pebbles. These are just bumps of, they basically spray it with uh, water, and as the water hits the ice, it forms onto these, these little bumps. And the curling stone itself, if you look at the base of a curling stone, it's concave. So it's not flat, only a small ring of the curling stone actually touches the ice. And that that ring is is quite rough. It's a granite stone, and it's and it's actually roughened. So you've got this rough stone, and then you've got this weird kind of textured ice. And as a player releases the stone, you will see that they they rotate it slightly as they release it. If you throw a curling stone straight, it will mostly go straight. But if you rotate it as it as it goes, it does it curls. It does what the name suggests. The weird thing is that the way that a curling stone moves on pebbled ice is very different from, say, a bottle sliding on a, on a surface. And we still don't quite fully have the physical explanation for what is going on. The, the leading idea is that as the stone slides along the ice, each time the rough edge of the stone hits this textured, one of these textured pebbles it causes the stone to rotate ever so slightly you know it, it rotates in about I think it's 40 nanoseconds right it's millions of times quicker than you can blink but it does that many thousands of times as the stone slides along the ice sheet and that will cause it to kind of pivot around and rotate and it forms this curling path 
There is another theory that maybe the stone is actually scratching the ice as it moves along. But to be honest, that theory is a bit less well-developed at the moment. Um, so probably the leading theory is what they call the pivot slide theory. And when you see a, a, a player sweep the ice, what they're actually doing is they're trying to straighten out the stone's curl. So they're trying to kind of fight against the natural curl. Um, and usually by sweeping, you, you melt the ice a tiny bit in front of the stone and it helps the stone to travel further in a, in a straighter path. So there's a real mixture, like friction, a slipperiness play a huge role in, in curling. And it's I think it's why it's my favorite winter sport. Yeah, and there's no way to talk about stickiness without talking about friction, it seems. Uh, and, and so what you're really talking about is either increasing or reducing friction uh, yeah. in order to, to affect the traje trajectory or path or speed uh, of the stone. All right. Well, you're probably a little bit overexcited now after we've been talking about curling. So we're going to take a quick break here. We're going to come back. And it's going to get more exciting because we're, we're going to talk about geckos. So get ready. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to, to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. don't attract much attention. But speculation as to how they stick has mostly come from watching geckos taking walls in their stride. 
But the smoothest pasta is not really smooth when viewed close up under an electron microscope. Could these tiny bumps rub against the gecko's textured soles to make a friction hole? This, after all, is what stops trainers from slipping at the gym. But no one can make trainers grip upside down. That, of course, is David Attenborough. I shouldn't need to tell you that. Uh, and uh, joining us now, well, we have Laurie Winkless, of course, science writer, physicist, and author of the new book, Sticky, The Secret Science of Stickiness. But also we have with us Dr. Alyssa Stark, a professor at Villanova University. She runs a lab that studies biological adhesion. Welcome to our conversation. Hi, good to have you um, meet you here. And so my sense in reading Laurie's book and reading about you is that, yes, there's lots of animals. Spiders can climb up walls and hang from the ceiling, and so can ants. And they're, But there's sort of, in some way, there's geckos, and then there's everybody else. So, Alyssa, what's so special about geckos? Yeah, um, well, they're quite charismatic, right? Um, they're a larger organism, so they attract a lot of attention. But their adhesion um, is actually quite different than um, a lot of other biological adhesive systems. A lot of biological adhesive systems use a glue, so they actually produce a secretion. Um, and we were just talking about earlier on the show things like super glue um, and and you know children's glue that we use in our everyday life. Geckos actually don't have that, so that's kind of what sets them apart. Um, as you heard in that little clip, um, they have very hairy toes <laughs> instead. <laughs> so those hairs actually allow geckos to um, maximize surface area. So those tiny, tiny little hairs are actually contacting um, quite a bit of the surface. And by that multiple, um, all of those multiple contacts in the surface or on the surface, it allows geckos to generate very high adhesion forces through very um, simple kind of um, forces that are around us all over, which are van der Waals uh, forces. Right. So, Lori, uh, interestingly enough, there are two contexts in your book in which the term curling comes up. We just covered one of them, uh, the sport of curling. But it's also there's sort of a curling, uncurling action of the gecko's feet, Lori, that, that uh, allows this it, to maximize what Alyssa has just described. Yes, because um, like Alyssa says, you know, the, the geckos are amazing because they can kind of turn on and off their stickiness, right? That's what allows them to move so quickly. And the way that they do it is they want to change the angle of those hairs on their hairy toes. And by curling their toes back from a surface, they can detach those hairs, changing the angle that they make with the wall, which kind of turns down or turns off really the van der Waals forces. It separates it from the wall enough to, to get rid of van der Waals forces. And when they want to stick, they place their feet against whatever the surface is and they tug it down ever so slightly, which causes those hairs to, to splay out and it turns on those van der Waals forces again. So they can turn their stickiness on and off, which is which is one of the reasons that so many people have, are fascinated by them. You know, uh, Alyssa Stark, uh, as we were having a staff meeting about this, uh, this particular episode, and I'm not going to name any names, but it turned out that one of our producers ha has owned geckos in the past, and she was under the impression that they had little tiny suction cups. Uh, so, I mean, apparently even people who own ge ge geckos do not know their, their fantastic secret. Yes, definitely. Um, I've heard that, and I've also heard kind of Velcro. Um, mm. So if you look at the bottom of their feet, 
Um, and not all geckos are sticky, by the way. So you have to have the right gecko. Um, but um, if you look at the bottom of the feet of a sticky gecko, especially if they're attached to maybe the side of their tank, if you have a pet gecko, um, you'll see lines on their toes. And those lines are actually full of those very, very microscopic hairs that you, you can't see by eye. Um, but um, there's, no, there's no suction happening there. It's just the hair contact. Now, um, recently... A controversy exploded. It has nothing to do with insurance commercials, uh, but it does have to do with sticking to walls. Uh, Kat, this is going to be uh, A2. You will recognize the voice immediately. Because a new study from Cambridge University, yeah, the smart one, <laughs> says that according to their calculations, Spider-Man should not be able to climb walls. No, no, yeah, 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 yeah. Boo! I'm not questioning these scientists' credentials. I think they're the ones who tried to warn us that Spider-Man could not be a Broadway show. But we didn't listen. We didn't listen. But no wall climbing? I mean, that's one of the main things that Spider-Man does. Without that, he just shoots goo and is radioactively guilty about his uncle. But according to the study, the largest animal capable of wall climbing is the gecko. And I'm not sure if Kirsten Dunst wants to kiss one of those upside down. So, Lori, uh, th- what followed was a video, which I watched today. We're not going to play it because it's kind of visually dependent, uh, of a Stanford University scientist named Elliot Hawks uh, rebuking Stephen Colbert <laughs> and then demonstrating how he could, with something he was attaching to his hands and feet, cl- climb up a wall. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, um, I loved this. And I, Elliot is a really, really nice guy and it's always keen to talk about it too. Um, he basically used, in Stanford for a long time now, they've been developing this kind of gecko-inspired adhesive tape. Now, it's nowhere near as complicated as the gecko's foot. It doesn't have the features are much larger than the tiny, tiny hairs that uh, Alyssa has been talking about. Um, but it had taken some inspiration in that it uses these kind of wedges, these silicone wedges that point in one direction. And that if you change the angle, um, you change the way it touches the wall, that splays out or or shrinks back like the hair and it taps into this, this Van der Waals force. So Elliot used this gecko-inspired tape um, and put and basically built a, a climbing a climbing machine <laughs> based on it. Um, so the, the gecko tape was applied to these kind of flat in, in small in small segments, kind of postage si- postage stamp sized pieces of this tape. He put them onto these flat paddles. Um, each one of those little bits of tape was attached to effectively kind of like a, a wire um, that would help to, to curl and uncurl it. Um, and then the whole, the, these two hands were connected by a, a long kind of pole to a foot support. So what it would mean is that he could lift his, his say his right hand up and his right foot would go with it and then put the paddle in contact with the wall, tug it down turn on the Van der Waals forces and then do the same with his left foot. And he managed to get up, a, I think it was about four metres um, up a glass wall on, on a building on Stanford campus. Um, so, yeah, he, he was really determined to show that it would be possible to, to do that. 
Uh, actually, Tom Cruise went way higher in Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. But um, so, Alyssa, you're kind of on speed dial for I think from a lot of companies uh, who, who want to who want to figure out something, right? That nature has these incredible, nuanced, mysterious at times capacities that uh, that people would like to tap into one way or another. Uh, so, what do they tend to be inter- like? Who tends to be interested in this? Yeah, um, so it really can range um, quite a bit. Um, It could be um, anything from medical devices is very popular or any sort of medical healthcare needs. Um, It can also be just practical uses. We need something that sticks underwater on a boat, for instance, um, or something that sticks on our body like a bra um, or um, other ways to attach, you know, equipment for, say, our pilots and things like that, people that um, are going to be um, maintaining location um, for long periods of time. So so it really kind of has run the gauntlet. I've been quite surprised of the different um, requests and interests I've gotten and many things I never would have thought of. Um, you know, a temporary adhesive in the eye for 30 seconds. I would have never thought that that was a need. Right. You mentioned bras. We do know that you actually did get a call, right, from Victoria's Secret. I yeah, I, <laughs> yeah. I thought there was a whole other process for getting those products sticky. Um, but you also <laughs> mentioned uh, boats and underwater. And in a way, geckos are so last year, right? Sea urchins are so 2022. Uh, explain what they have to do with all this. Yeah. So my lab works on several different sticky creatures. Um, I kind of, I really am interested actually in adhesives that have to stick and release. So like Lori said, um, geckos run really fast. Ants run really fast. Um, Sea urchins do not run very fast, (laughs) Um, but they do actually still move. And people don't know that. Those are those little spiky balls that you see in tide pools if you go out looking um, at a low tide. Um, And those organisms are actually herbivores. So they're moving around on those surfaces um, and needing to stay attached while they're being literally pummeled by waves um, and exposed to predators. Um, And then they're doing it in water, which is another challenge we kind of mentioned earlier. Um, Water often is one of the most difficult um, challenges for adhesives to um, to get over basically, to be able to adhere while in a wet or a humid environment. Um, and sea urchins are doing that. So that's a, a new system in my lab that we're starting to work on um, more now because it's not just a permanent glue in salt water. It's a glue that can be released and moved um, around. Um, Lori, we've only got about 90 seconds left in this segment. Uh, but one thing that uh, somebody says in your book, and I'll, I'll miss say it now, but uh, in your in your gecko chapter is there's a way in which nature really does inspire a certain kind of humility. I mean, we might want to try to reverse engineer some of these biological capacities, but it's it's not that easy. Right. Nature just does stuff that we can't do. Yeah, we are nowhere close to being able to reproduce the the level of complexity that we see on a gecko's foot. Um, I am not sure that we would ever have invented it had we not seen it in nature or, you know, even thought that it could possibly exist if we hadn't seen it in nature beforehand. But, you know, evolution's had a long time to um, to fine tune its design, whereas really we have only been trying to engineer bio-inspired systems for, you know, just a few decades. So we need to cut ourselves some slack on that. Maybe we'll catch up. <laughs> All right. Uh, that That is a philosophical point on which to end this segment. Thanks to Dr. Alyssa Stark, professor at Villanova University. She runs a lab that studies biological adhesion. Lori Winkless, science writer, physicist, and author of the new book, Sticky, 
the secret science of stickiness. And we are going to take a break right now. Uh, We are going to uh, ask you to stay for one final segment. We are going to say goodbye to these two wonderful guests and approach from a different angle something else that's very sticky. That sticky thing would be chewing gum. It's time to say some thank yous, so thank you to our technical producer, Kat Pastor. Thanks to Julia Pistel, who produced this episode, and senior producer, Lily Tyson, who has overseen everything as she always does. So our final segment is a little bit different from what has preceded it. Uh, We've been talking about stickiness. Now we're going to talk about something sticky, uh, something that you may have found on the underside of your shoe. No, 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 not that. Uh, Something a little less unpleasantly sticky than that. That would be chewing gum. Uh, Chewing gum is a pretty much ever-present part of American life, as we will discuss. It is interlaced with various kind of symbolic narratives about America I'll tell you my favorite one. We're going to play this clip right now. Maybe I should set it up. This is from The Right Stuff. You're going to see Sam Shepard as Chuck Yeager approaching a mechanic, I guess is what he is, uh, played by Levon Helm. And this is – so Chuck Yeager was the most famous test pilot in the world. Uh, and for a long time, he was kind of symbolic of a certain streak of Americanism. And so apparently he and this mechanic had a ritual, sort of a good luck ritual, every time Yeager showed up to – go flying into the sky in one of these not entirely safe or very well-proven machines, hence the term test pilot. Uh, so here's what they would say to one another. Hey, Ridley. Yeah. You got any beamers? I might have me a stick. Well, loan me something, would you? I'll pay you back later. Fair enough. I think I see a plane over here with a name on it. So here to tell us what's happening to chewing gum right now, which is uh, maybe a different narrative, Will Coldwell, uh, a freelance writer and regular contributor to The Guardian, Economist, and Financial Times. He is the writer of the Economist article, Bursting the Bubble, How Gum Lost Its Cool. So first of all, welcome to our conversation. Hi there. And, and uh, well, let's begin with the headline itself. Uh, something happened during the pandemic, something that was not good if you make your living uh, making or selling chewing gum. Describe the phenomenon. Yeah, well, um, during the pandemic, for, for a number of reasons, people just stopped chewing gum. Uh, I guess, you know, the, the obvious thing is that everyone had face masks over their, their mouths, but also people weren't going out, um, partying, going on dates, um, you know, or, hit, you know, going on road trips and driving around and, and stopping by garages, all these places where people would traditionally grab some gum um, and, and have a chew. So, yeah, sales dropped by about 14% in, in 2020, um, which was, you know, pretty, pretty difficult for, for the gum industry. Right. So we should talk a little bit uh, more about what chewing gum is, because 
uh, not so much what it is, you know, the physics and chemistry of what it is, but what it is symbolically, because people chew it for all kinds of different reasons. But there, there's a sense that when you are chewing it, you're doing more than just masticating. Uh, and one of the things that you point out is, is you know, although and, may, and maybe in a way that ties into Chuck Yeager, too, Chuck Yeager, ultimately a rugged individual, a guy who rebelled, the guy who did his own thing. So maybe uh, he, he needs some beamons before he gets in that that terrifying machine. But there's a way in which rebellion and gum uh, have gone hand in hand. Say some more about that. Um, yeah, I mean, the thing with gum is that it, it's quite a, you know, nothing product. It, it's sort of what you make of it. And over the years, people have attached all kinds of um, ideas and identities to it. And during the Second World War, particularly, it became very patriotic. It was associated with the American GI. And then, you know, because Americans were were perceived as, you know, the ultimate, uh, the, the pinnacle of cool uh, around the world, particularly in, in in Britain at the time, young people started chewing gum to, to emulate these, these guys, Hollywood stars were chewing gum, which which made it hit, you know, the world over. And then, you know, this spilled into pop culture. So gum generally kind of became associated with, you know, rock stars um, having a bit of attitude, you know, and this just continued throughout the second half of the, the 20th century. Um, you know, I guess you could, uh, one example of this kind of how desirable gum was in, in, in terms of pop culture, perhaps was when a piece of gum spat out by Britney Spears was was sold on eBay for <laughs> you know, £10,000. But, you know, then then things kind of took a bit of a turn for, for gum and after the millennium, it, it, it started to lose that cool. So the thing is, is even while the pandemic was was very unfavorable for, for chewing, uh, gum was already uh, on the wane. I just have flashed to another thing, and I, this may not resonate with you, uh, but uh, you may be the wrong age, but uh, for a long time, for, forever, I think, uh, when David Letterman was hosting a late night television show, if a guest arrived on stage chewing gum, uh, which oddly enough was not that uncommon <laughs> an experience, uh, Letterman, in his best imitation of a high school vice principal, would hold out a sheet of paper uh, and the guest was expected to place the gum in the middle of the sheet of paper so that Letterman could crumple it up and, and throw it in the waste paper basket. Because uh, there, there is that thing about the breakfast club, right? There's a way in which you're chewing gum. When you chew gum, you are sending a signal that you do not take this situation seriously enough to achieve a level of formality. Does that sound fair? Oh, yeah, completely. It's It's, you know, indifferent, you know, slightly angsty. It's... You know, it's I've got I've got something better to do than give my complete attention to to whatever's going on around me. Right. I mean, you know, in solemn British coronations and other royal occasions, you're just not even going to see Princess Beatrice or somebody chewing gum. They, you know, they just they, you can't be doing that. So now uh, uh, let's talk a little bit about the pandemic. You, you already laid out a lot of circumstances that changed. Um, some people would argue that gum also is kind of a last-minute decision, that you don't necessarily go to the grocery store with chewing gum on your list uh, of things to get. But as you approach the cash register, which is, of course, that's why they put it there, uh, you see it, you think, oh, yes, that would be nice to have. Um, but people were acquiring their groceries differently, right? They were ordering them. They were ordering them in a way that's maybe a little bit more hyper-conscious. Yeah, completely. I mean, uh, gum's 
kind of grab and go product you you'd buy it you know as you check out or on your way to a night out or you know maybe just ask someone if they've got got a spare piece of it you are probably unlikely to put in an order of um, 100 pieces of Wrigley's on your your online grocery delivery. <laughs> well, yeah. And so now not to get too deeply into the semiotics of gum, uh, but actually to get too deeply into the semiotics of gum, um, there's a way in which also gum is something that we chew to freshen our breath. It's one of the many reasons we do it. There's some indication. There's now been a lot of studies of chewing gum. Maybe it enhances concentration. Maybe it helps relaxation. But that idea of freshening one's breath is another reason why people aren't buying it. Um, Although we have two different freelance producers, including the one who's producing this episode, who said that they craved gum because of their masks. It meant that they were more aware of the smell of their own breath since they were trapped there with it. The gum became more attractive. Uh, I suppose it sort of depends on what you're using the gum for, what you're more concerned about, how you feel about your own breath or how other people feel about it. Yeah, completely. Um, In honesty, like lots of people do still really enjoy chewing gum and um it is an easy way to freshen your breath if you when you're out and about i suppose lots of those circumstances when you may be more self-conscious of of how your breath smells were um eradicated by lockdown um you're just at home alone with your with your breath um but yeah i mean people have lots of reasons to to chew gum apart from that i suppose people do you know people do anecdotally find it helps them concentrate or it can you know, help them if they're feeling peckish, you know, just to stave off <laughs> hunger. And these are all, you know, things that the gum industry have tried to research and, and develop products and, and sell products around because, you know, they're always trying to come up with new reasons and arguments why, you know, we should be chewing gum. I mean, as you point out, this isn't a fashion that necessarily descended upon us you know, in the last 50 years or so, you point out that humans have been chewing uh, various barks and resins for thousands of years and that modern chewing gum dates from the 1860s. Uh, I guess there's a reason that chiclets are called chiclets, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, you know, humans have always kind of had a, had some kind of desire to chew. So there obviously is something innately satisfying about it. Um But yeah, you know, for, for centuries, um Mayans and Aztecs chewed um Chicle, which was this resin that came from a tree in 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 Mexico, and and this is a you know core product of of um, chiclets, I, I believe. And um, though in the the nineteen fifties or so, um, you know, gum manufacturers in America decided to start making um, synthetic gums out of uh, rubber and plastic, which is is the predominant gum we, we now chew today. You know, there was sort of a period of time in America where, I, I don't know about England, but there was a period of time in America um, in the early part of the 20th century where everything was sold as a health product. I mean, Coca-Cola was introduced as a health product. Uh, you know, um, it, it was supposed to have all confer all kinds of health benefits. And I gather that's a little bit the case with uh, gum, too. We have a baseball stadium here in America called Wrigley Field, uh, named after the purveyor of Wrigley chewing gum. And, and apparently it was, first of all, I think, according to your reporting, uh, first of all, included as a free thing with baking powder and soap that was being sold, became more popular. But it was sold with the promise of health benefits, right? Chewing gum would be good for you. Yeah, it was almost like a form of kind of medication, um, 
as opposed to you know a sweet or or a candy you know Wrigley's came up with sort of arguments that yeah gum would solve whatever kind of petty ailment or anxiety you you were dealing with and you know I suppose um like many habit forming products they they kind of do provide sort of you know gum does provide some sort of mild distraction or, or relief i suppose yeah here in america there was a soda called moxie sold around the same time uh, more popular than coke for a while and among the so-called uh, benefits of moxie uh, were uh, the prevention of loss of manhood and softening of the brain so I drank a lot of Moxie, and it does not work. Um, so um, there's a commercial uh, for a product called Extra Gum. It's become viral. I think there's 7 million views on the extended, you know, two-and-a-half-minute version of, of this commercial. Uh, and what it shows is this kind of magical kind of liminal moment uh, in, in which uh, the pandemic ends. This is, by the way, not the way it's going to happen, but the, there's a day, there's a moment, there's an hour. Everybody says, oh, it's okay. Uh, and doors open and people with big long beards uh, come walking out and, and people uh, flood into the streets, into the public parks, which technically have never been really off limits during the pandemics. But uh, and, and what they really want to do also, apparently, is begin making out with each other. Uh, and, and there's a way in which they – and then, of course, ex packs of extra gum are produced from pockets in order to facilitate the pleasure of, of making out with total strangers. Um, and um, so the question is, is that going to happen? Is it happening yet? There's obviously uh, something uh, of a drop uh, in the infection rate. Um, is is that that big hard hit that chewing gum took? Is it coming to an end? Well, I don't know if we've seen we're seeing scenes quite like that advert yet, though. I'm sure <laughs> <people> would, <laughs> would love would love that to happen. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's been a um, a bit of a bounce back to to pre-pandemic levels, um, which which makes sense. People are out and about again. I think one of the um, bosses at one of the big gun brands uh, pointed to people being on the move again on the road, and I think they're now trying to develop um, more kinds of uh, you know bumper boxes of gum that that you can stick in your car and and leave there. And so so obviously the gum companies are kind of trying to hone in on this people being on the move again uh i i guess the the thing is is i think this this downturn is is much bigger than than just the pandemic so if gum's having a bit of a, a recovery because of these extraordinary couple of years uh i don't know if that's necessarily going to change the fact that for the last 10 15 years uh people have been kind of turning away from it more, more generally right i'll just uh, I'm going to end with one very unscientific thought about this. I mean, it's an unscientifically proven thought. One thing that occurred to me reading your piece is that when you chew gum, for, for a lot of people, some people are able to re rather demurely chew gum, but for most people, their mouths come open a bit uh, as they're chewing. Uh, and particularly if you're a member of the Breakfast Club and you want to piss off a teacher who's uh, running your detention hall, you know, you definitely want to do that. You want to have almost a kind of a slackness in your mouth as you're chewing gum. I, I'm just sort of wondering if that maybe contributed to some of the paranoia. I mean, who wants to have their mouth open more in the middle of an airborne pandemic? So I, everybody can just file that away as a very unscientific observation. But it does sound as though uh, there'll be a rebound, uh, that uh, gum in its sticky, bouncy way is going to bounce back, uh, but maybe not all the way back. I guess that's what we're saying, Will. Yeah, I, I, I do think so, though. I mean, 
if the history of gum shows shows us anything, um, these these brands have done very well at conjuring up new new ways to sell. Um, ultimately, uh, uh, a fairly pointless product <laughs> that offers almost no nutritional value uh, or benefit at all, other than you know giving you something to do with your jaw. So I'm sure they'll they'll figure something out. Right. Either that, or I'll be walking around a, a landscape littered with dead bodies, saying, "Oh, it turns out the gum was really valuable. Uh, they shouldn't have stopped." <laughs> uh, all right. Well, thanks very much to you. Thanks to very, everybody who listened. Uh, thanks to Julia Pistel and her fascination with stickiness. We will be back with more and more shows of this type. We see just what we want to see all coming back to me. The flesh and the fantasies all coming back to me. I can barely recall, but it's all 